Um, I guess maybe a little bit of background first. I first met Jules, I believe it was at the Cedar City ITUP in like 2019. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, I remember that second. <laughs> I think we actually met before at the Cyclocross race. Where oh, really? You, where I let you borrow my bike. Oh, right. I used your bike. Uh, yes. Five minutes before the start of your race, and we're trying to scramble and get the yep. seat post height correct. <laughs> You're right. Good memory. <laughs> And that was exciting. That was, so that would have been in 2018 because it was cyclocross state champs my yep. senior year. Yeah. Okay. That is awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, that good times. Um, but we really haven't like spent too much time together. Mostly just those two quick little things. Um, no, yeah, because we we kind of met and then um, uh, you kind of left for your mission soon afterwards. Um, so, and I guess you, you've been back for maybe a year or so now, so we, yeah, a little over a year. Um, yeah, we just haven't had a, a ton of overlap. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be good. Catch up a little bit. Um, maybe to start, could you just tell us your story kind of, cause I've, you're from France. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So maybe tell us just from the get go to where you are now. Yeah. Um, Basically, yeah, kind of long story short, um, my, my family's, we're all from France, uh, from the south of France, and uh, that's where I was born, and we moved to the U.S. in the late 90s. I was around six years old for my dad's work at the time. He's an engineer, and it's kind of the, kind of started the tech boom back in the Silicon Valley, uh, so we all moved out there, um, grew up in, in a very much French household because my mom didn't really speak English and we went to uh, French American schools growing up. Um, would, would go back to France in the summers to visit grandparents, family in general. And that's, that's almost the first time I've, I saw bike racing was during the summer going to my grandparents' houses and seeing, uh, they would bring us to the Tour de France. They would just bring us to the side of the road in retrospect, like the worst possible spot to watch the tour would be like a downhill turn. You know, we'd see them in like three seconds and that was it. But we didn't know any better. And we thought it was awesome to see the caravans and just, you know, all the advertisements, still like the colorful Peloton. Uh, but that was kind of my only like concept of bike racing. For me, bike racing was Tour de France. Like I, I didn't even realize there was such a thing as amateur bike racing as, as silly as that sounds now <laughs> um it just seemed like this thing that would be impossible to get into so i never really thought much of it um played soccer through high school went to college on the east coast in new england um in Rhode Island, um and that's actually where i started uh well, that's where i kind of got introduced to endurance sports joined the cycling team there a uh, good group of small guys and girls there. Uh, and that was just super fun. Uh, did the collegiate cycling road scene there, traveled all over in New England with the, the school team, uh, super fun. And then that second year, of, and so my sophomore year in college is kind of when I started uh, taking it a little bit more seriously and actually training and seeing uh, really big improvements right away. So that's always motivating. Um, and then kind of kept that while I was getting my degree in, in product design. Um, and then my senior year of, of college, I got uh, third at Collegiate Nationals on the road. 
and then joined a U23 road team that was based on the East Coast, um, CCB. And we that was awesome because it was a lot of other U23 uh, racers like me, and we got to travel that were all very like motivated and ambitious. And um, also, all of us had kind of what we had in common was a bit of a late start to the sport, kind of a lot of us kind of started in college. Um, so that team was kind of a, uh, an opportunity for, you know, in second terms, kind of like late bloomers to give us an opportunity. And we, we got to race uh, in Belgium, in Europe, uh, in France. And then we even went to Asia, uh, did uh, a two-week-long stage race there, which was crazy on the road. That was after I had graduated. So at that point, I, I had no real plans of what I was going to do. Yeah. Uh, Ended up in, in China, did a tour of China, and then I joined a continental uh, pro team out there for the rest of that fall season, uh, still with like no real plan of what I was going to do. Uh, but, you know, it was really cool because in Asia, there's actually like quite a bit of uh, prize money. So you, it's actually a lot more um, feasible to try and uh, to make some sort of living or at least scrape by. Um, yeah. so I did that and then race in China, race in Malaysia, race in Taiwan. Uh, and then eventually I got, I started getting a little homesick <laughs> and then the winter was coming off season. I was like, I don't, at this point, I don't really have any plans. So I went back home to California, joined a domestic team there on the road, raced for a year, but then realized it was just like not the same thing. Um, you know, you have to travel so far in the U.S. to do these races, and there's not much money. There's not many spectators. It was just a different experience. And then I got my job opportunity to come out here to Utah, and at that point, I was basically living out of a suitcase, so I figured Utah sounds great. You know, let's go check it out. <laughs> uh, tried to still race on the road once I got here, but then that's when I really fell in love with mountain biking. And I was like, I, I don't want to ride on the roads when there's these mountains right there. Um, want to get away from the cars, kind of um, be on the trail. It was just, just made me much happier. So kind of start transitioning to endurance mountain bike racing. Um, that's what I've been doing now for maybe the last, uh, yeah, I guess like five, five, six years. Okay. That's sweet. And when did you start schema racing? So uh, I've like I've alpine skied, um, kind of growing up, you know, um, but you know maybe we'd do like a winter vacation and ski for like a week. So it was never like I would ski like full winter or anything like that. Um, and then I didn't really start skiing again consistently until I moved here six years ago, and I actually started uh, cross country skiing at uh, Norfolk. Mm -hmm. uh, they do a, the Ogden Nordic that has a great, they have great facilities and they groom their trails almost every day. And there's wow. um, super fun, super awesome. Um, like most things I get like really into it and I want to like learn as much as I can. And, and I get really motivated when I see progress. So I just started skiing a ton during the winter, just as like cross training, uh, I signed up for my, like a, a 50 K ski race, uh, and was, yeah, I was just loving it, but unfortunately, my enthusiasm was did not match my skill level. And <laughs> I started uh, developing a bit of a tendon issue on my left leg. Um, 
So actually from the like skating motion. Um, so I had to stop doing that. And I was kind of bummed out because I was, I was really enjoying that. Uh, and a friend of mine introduced me to Schemo. And I had, I had never heard about it uh, or even really knew what backcountry skiing was. Um, but we try, I tried it out and like the, the vertical motion of my ankle didn't irritate my tendon. So I was like, oh, cool. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll try this. Um, the first year I just bought like, uh, so I, was, I would say that's, that was probably like three years ago. Um, the first year I, I had no idea what schema was. So I just bought like total, just one KSL and like got backcountry gear, had no idea you know what to look for and uh, any of that sort of stuff. But I, my, one of my coworkers at the time took me to the snow basin uphill uh, route in the morning. And I was like, this is awesome. Uh, so, and that was around the end of the winter. So in the next season, I, bought a used set of schema race gear and uh then i just got really into it sweet and now you're on team usa for schema correct correct yes yeah. so, uh last year was my first year um with them and then uh i have a i qualified again for next year so this will be my second season um with the national team uh which is always exciting that's super cool. So is your focus now primarily on skiing or biking or is it kind of both? What would tell us about that a little bit? Uh, you know, it's a good question. And it's definitely something I think about, um, a lot. Um, I feel like, um, I'm really happy with what I've been able to achieve in my like cycling you know, career, if you will. Um, I have great sponsors. Um, I've had great support the last five years um been able to race all over kind of utah colorado in the u.s in general um and the last two years i've been able to to do the marathon world championships and that was always kind of a big goal for me um but for me that was kind of like the pinnacle of the sport you know um i felt like i had done it and then i had done it again and i I really enjoyed, but it was almost, I know that that was almost my, uh, I had almost reached my potential because I know I'm not going to win world championships or be top five or top 10. Um, the best I can do is try to, you know, marginally improve, um, my results or try and like stay consistent year over year. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, it's just, that's just not as exciting anymore compared to when you have to this new sport where you're seeing so much progress so quickly like and you're just learning so much uh with schema like for me that it just it got way more exciting you know and um in terms of effort you put into the reward you get out of it i was i'm just seeing a lot more return with my time invested in schema versus cycling uh so i think right now i think last year was the first year i kind of really took both was schema seriously almost to the same level as uh, mountain biking and i feel like the tides are changing a little bit and then next year schema will be maybe the priority and then cycling will be to um, to stay busy in the summer to stay fit to train for the schema season still do some high level races but it won't be my you know number one goal in first year yeah wow okay that's super interesting so you maybe let's kind of jump back to when you were racing in asia Sure. Um, 
I'm curious, what was that like traveling as a team? Where would you guys stay? Like, I don't know, walk me through kind of a stage race in Asia. Uh, yeah, uh, it was wild. Um, uh, it's really cool because in Asia, <clears throat> and I guess in, like in China in particular, uh, the races are government funded and they usually are, they pull money from their like sports tourism budget. Cool. So, which actually makes a lot of sense. Um, so it, it would, so basically each town that hosts a race, like they're trying to show off their village or their city or their, their nicest hotels and whatnot. So they basically pay for everything. And we are staying in these like five-star hotels. No way. <laughs> uh, we get shuttled around in buses. Sometimes it was like six hour bus rides through the countryside in China, which, uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Stop at these gas stations and trying to scramble through this the gas station and find some sort of snack that we, uh, for the rest of the ride. Uh, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, I was really, uh, I've always, I feel pretty lucky and privileged that I've been pretty well traveled before that experience. So I wasn't, it wasn't really overwhelming in a sense where uh, I'm excited to try new foods. I'm, I'm excited to not be super comfortable in an environment, you know, like I, I actually embraced that sort of situation where a lot of other foreigners who were, we were racing with, they were trying to be very like strict about keeping, almost mimicking the same sort of bubble they would have in Europe in uh, terms of getting ready for races and going to bed at a certain time, eating a certain type of food, having their pre-race routines where uh that once you're in asia that all that goes out the window <laughs> yeah uh and i i like that I, and i like that sort of uh being able to manage that stress and chaos um and seeing who who kind of comes up on top interesting uh so you kind of have to just just roll with the way they do it out there totally yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely uh which you know it's part of the experience it's part of the fun um but I think racing in Asia definitely was a big eye opener for me in terms of what was possible in terms of like road racing career, I guess, because as I just mentioned, like for me, all that was like, you know, it was fun. It was like a fun, it was a cool experience, but I would see, especially like Eastern European teams that were there and they were not trying to have fun. They were there to like do a job. Yeah. That's kind of when I realized, like, man, and I and I, I you know, I befriended a few of them during because we were racing for two weeks and kind of travel going to the same hotels and stuff. And a lot of them, it was like, yeah, they have a wife and kid back home, and the family business is like working at a farm, you know. So it's like either they can try and cut it as a cyclist doing all these races around Asia and make some money, or it's go back to the farm back home and live a pretty simple life. So. That kind of made me realize like, wow, there's a big difference between a lot of American cyclists who pursue a professional career almost from a hobby perspective, more so than people who pursue it as like a, uh, an actual source of income, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's quite different. And uh, uh, not to get like too into it, but that also made me almost uh, realize how... I could almost understand why these people would take much bigger risks, whether that's um, physical risk descending and whatnot, or uh, risk with 
um, you know, performance enhancing drugs, because for them, it was like, if something happens, whatever, they retire, they leave the sport, they've made some money. Um, and that's that, you know, uh, uh, not saying that it's okay by any means, but it, it made me realize like, okay, I, it's a different perspective than what we hear back home where for us, it's kind of a fun hobby, you know? Sure. Like they actually are, they need the money. Right. Right. Huh. That is really interesting. I yeah, know it definitely does seem like all of the pros I've talked to and the people around here, seem, they, they definitely got into it initially for fun. Right. You know, it wasn't like I need a job. I'm going to go be a pro cyclist. I don't think right. that ever goes through people's <laughs> minds here. <laughs> Which we, you know, we're very, we're very fortunate to, that that's the case that we can, we can enjoy these hobbies where, yeah, for a lot of people, they don't really have much of an option. Yeah, totally. That's super crazy. Do you have any like crazy stories from your, or from Asia, anything wild that happened while you were there? Oh man, I, I got the like most sick I've ever been. I think <laughs> we like, we did a full stage and it was pouring rain in the countryside, you know, like basically cow, you know, poop on the roads and it's raining all that's getting like flicked in your face and Ooh. uh that after like a couple of days in a row i just got i was just floored and i was so sick uh and you know i couldn't really even speak to the doctors there like i didn't i didn't really know what was going on it was it was a real real struggle to just get through the race at that point um but yeah i've seen some some awesome uh landscape you know racing through like tea fields almost uh racing mountaintop finishes to this temple in the middle of like a bamboo forest it's like just super cool <laughs> oh, that's crazy yeah it sounds like the, so it's so you and you race several stage races then out there in, in asia you were saying yeah you have a I guess maybe this is, let's maybe do two. Do you have a favorite like all-time road race and then after an all-time mountain bike race? Uh, like anywhere in the world? Yeah. Hmm. That's a tricky question. Uh, I would say my all-time favorite road race. I, you know, I would, I think I would have to say like the one that I have the most, the best memories or strongest memories was probably, um, collegiate nationals when I finished on the podium because result aside that was on on the Richmond course and we we were used as a test event for the world championships that was going to happen a year later oh wow uh, so it was, it was like downtown Richmond um super legit like roads closed we had full like police escorts uh it, it was just like we it, it was almost the first time where I did a race as a collegiate athlete where I, I felt like we were treated like like a pro peloton, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that that experience is really cool, and obviously to have be able to have good legs and and have a good race then that was just kind of the cherry on top. So I think I have really good memories of that. Um, favorite mountain bike race? Oh boy, uh, uh hmm. Part of me wants to say uh, Paris Hole in Grand Targhee. Okay. Uh, I love that it's basically like ninety percent single track. Wow. Uh, I love that area. Hundred. It was when I did it. It was a hundred miles. I think now they do like a hundred k. Okay. Um, but I think another one that 
it, I always feel like unfinished business in a way is uh, Leadville for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even though I don't necessarily like the the terrain, the the course itself, uh, I think the altitude factor and the uh, sort of the uh, the fact that it's one of the biggest races in the U.S. at now at this point, um, the media factor and everything, just it just makes it like really hard. I've I've never been able to really uh, get all the pieces together to have a, the race I've wanted, and uh, yeah, it feels it feels like I have unfinished business there. <laughs> How many times have you raced Leadville? I uh, I must have done it like maybe like four or five times now. Um, it was actually like. My first ever mountain bike race was Leadville, basically. Oh, nice. yes. uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I had done the the Tahoe Trail as a qualifier for it and borrowed a friend's bike that was basically like a downhill bike, you know, like dual crown fork, <laughs> super heavy bike. And it was just like a climby 60 mile course. And that's where I got my like uh, ticket for Leadville that same year. And I went there and had to kind of scramble a bike buy a cheap bike on um, craigslist and didn't know anything about i think i even like i had tubes in i didn't know anything about tire oh. pressure. i didn't know anything about gearing i didn't know anything about altitude and <laughs> i distinctly remember like getting to the main climb in columbine and uh, rebecca rush that year was not racing the front of the race she was, she was kind of racing with a friend kind of showing her friend the ropes of Leadville and, and I had linked up I was like on Rebecca's wheel the base of Columbine and I was like I was so concentrated to try and just not let that wheel go <laughs> eventually blew up and uh limped my way back home uh the next 50 miles <laughs> that's rough so what was that first bike you did it on do you remember like the dual crown one like the down i did see it, that one crown. and the first bike you bought on craigslist the first bike i bought on craigslist was this like carbon hardtail Jameis. okay um but not not a bad bike at all um, yeah you know it was uh probably 100 mil front you know quick release front rear uh probably a, a double chain ring up front huh. uh, so <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. And so, and you were able to qualify on like the downhill bike at, <laughs> at Tahoe Trail. Yeah. Uh, so I think at that, I just had like really good like road fitness. And that was like, I think that was, yeah, maybe like sophomore or junior year of college. Um, I had just great like road fitness. And then I had mountain bikes. So I was like, hey, can I borrow? I asked one of my friends if I could borrow his mountain bike. And yeah, I didn't know the difference between cross-country bike or downhill bike or enduro bike or all that sort of stuff. So yeah, here you go. It's like, oh, sick. It's like specialized whatever. And like, yeah, I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> I, I have pictures of me like full, full like roadie spandex with like riding this like full <laughs> downhill bike. And looking so awesome. like Jerry now, looking back at it. But uh, yeah, I didn't care and I didn't know any better. So Wow. <laughs> that's amazing so unfinished business at leadville talk to us or do you think you're going to go back and do it again uh i don't know um not this year um and then i don't know you know maybe it's one of those things where 
since I'm kind of shifting focus to schema, maybe it's like, maybe it might not happen the next year or two, but maybe something I come back to later. Um, I feel like Leadville is definitely a race where you don't necessarily need to be in your, in your twenties to do well, you know, sure. I think those sort of endurance events. And that's kind of why I like them is that, uh, they're really, you know, conducive to, to lifetime athletes, uh, or lifelong athletes, you know, um, uh so yeah not this year uh one of the, one of the the best schema racer in the u.s john gaston um he lives in aspen i think and he only does like one or two mountain bike races a year and one of them is leadville and he i think last year he finished like second or third yeah so, uh i think um you know not to compare myself with john but i could see myself uh potentially dwindling down my, my mountain bike career and maybe just doing like one or two big mountain bike races a year and like level could be one of them. Yeah. That would be sweet. So what would be, what, if you don't mind me asking, what would be like your goal with Leadville? Like, like what's your, with, when you say unfinished business, what is yeah. like, what do you want to do there? Uh, you know, it definitely, uh, it's not so much time replacement related because that's so, there's nothing you can control about that, whether who shows up, how the weather is, it's more of like feeling like I had a, a, I nailed my pacing strategy. I nailed my nutrition. I like had, you know, as good of a training leaning up to it that I could and just feeling very fulfilled with things going as good as they could have been within, you know, my control. Okay. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And, you know, and if, if that means being 10th or if that means being, 50th that's fine you know <laughs> uh because we're seeing a lot of those big races whether it's uh leadville or unbound or even crusher and the tusher like people like to compare times from year to year but now with the rise in popularity of those off-road events that's all basically irrelevant at this point <laughs> you know yeah that is super interesting i really like that perspective yeah just nailing the feeling you know nailing the the day yeah because then you know that's like i would rather be super happy with my race uh and if that yeah if that means being six i'd rather have that happen than than feeling like i messed some stuff up and i didn't you know fuel right and then getting third i would almost be happier getting the sixth place because at least i feel like cool like i had this big goal i worked really hard towards it uh you know it's emotionally and physically uh, challenging and I got through it and I can be happy with that. So the result yeah. was just, yeah, kind of a, a bonus. Have you always had that mindset in racing? Um, I, I, I would say so. Um, yeah, I'd say so. I think, uh, I think it's definitely helped me try and, uh, nurture a healthy relationship with sports in general, not to be so, result oriented I, I feel like actually to be honest i feel like earlier in my career i was more result oriented because i thought that that's what mattered the most at the time to be able to whether it was working my way up getting my category upgrades on the road or trying to build some sort of race resume to apply for teams or in sponsors and stuff like that um for sure you know results do matter i think once i once I sort of got to the elite level, I feel like uh, at that point it was more like, okay, 
what I, I really like this. What can I do to keep doing this for the foreseeable future? And I feel like being so result driven burns people out really quickly, you know, or they get, it's easy for people to lose motivation if they don't feel like they're hitting their results all the time. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, I've, I feel like since I've gotten home from my mission, um, I've had like a shift almost in, uh, in, yeah, in this kind of like what you're talking about where before I would be very result focused, but now I kind of am more process focused mm -hmm. and it just leads to a better, a better, a healthier relationship with racing. Totally. And I think, I think having that mindset is almost what, uh, allowed me to really dive into schema in the winter and not feel like I have to go down to St. George or Tucson and ride 30 hours a week during the winter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because you, for sure. You see that on Instagram or on Strava and you're like, oh man, like, should I be riding my bike more? Um, but from where I'm at now, and it's something that I try and, um, encourage a lot of athletes out there is to, I'm a strong believer in, you know, the happiness factor for me is way more powerful than the extra five, 10% uh, physical gain, you know? So yeah. if I can do some schema all winter, you know, obviously still, it's still a great workout. It still keeps me like very active. Um, but most importantly, it keeps my mind really fresh and I'm, I get really excited and motivated when mountain bike season comes around versus grinding all winter in the rain or on the trainer or having to take time off to go to yeah, down south. I feel by the time spring or summer comes around, um, I would just be fried mentally. You know? Yeah, 100%. And I think so, for some people, they like that. They like moving down south. They like training all winter. And for them, it works. But... I'm with you, Lord. Yeah, this winter, I barely touched my bike. I just toured almost every day, you know, and it was awesome. I loved it. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely something to be said about the the uh, uh, committed sort of uh, training because it is how that is the way you see the most gains, whether you measure that with watts or an FTP or whatever, and that is the way to you know get better. Uh, maybe it's because I've been doing this long enough now that I feel like it's not so much about getting better. It's just about now being like consistently good and not getting injured, not getting sick or not losing motivation. Those three factors can make or break my, my season much more than if I add 50 Watts to my FTP, you know? Sure. Yeah. If you lose motivation mid spring, you're going to have a tough summer. You know, if you get, if you start too early and you do a race and you break your collarbone, that's also a pretty big setback. You know, if you, if you train too hard and you get the flu or something, that's a big setback as well. Yeah. That is really interesting to consider all of those factors. It can be easy to get super laser focused on just increasing fitness. So, and also like when I feel like when people are laser focused, if they do encounter a setback, it's a huge blow because that's all they were doing. That's all they were working for. And that's a really tough um, setback to get over where what's been really nice with these double goals, if you will, in the year between winter and summer is that 
I could have a great winter and if I have a terrible summer, that's fine. If I, I could have a terrible winter and if I have a great summer, that's fine too. Ideally, I'd have great both, you know? Yeah. But I feel like diversifying uh, yourself as an athlete just gives you more opportunities to find satisfaction uh, in little things instead of really being stressed out, thinking, oh man, I put all this work in this in the winter, in the spring, and I didn't nail my A race, you know? And that's a lot of pressure for people um so you know that's also a big reason i encourage young athletes to go to college get a degree you know get something find a job that you're somewhat passionate about because it would it will actually make you i think a better endurance athlete to have that sort of balance instead of going all in uh you know unless you're insanely talented and you can actually make a a, a good living out of it i think it's a big risk and uh I think eventually it's just a safer and healthier thing to have these different sort of uh, perspective and avenues that you can pull motivation from in case something goes bad. Mm. Yeah, I think that's super valid, good perspective. Um, yeah, I like that you kind of split these seasons into winter and summer with two separate goals, I think you said what are kind of like your your biggest schema goals obviously you've only been doing this for a couple of years what are your hopes and dreams with schema uh that's a good question um something that is different with schema compared to to cycling i guess is that the world championships only happen every other year oh interesting i know yeah, that. I, was, I was kind of surprised when i heard that too i was like wait what doesn't make any sense yeah it's like a world championship year or a continental championship year they alternate every year so this last winter i was able to participate in the world championships this next winter it'll be the north american championships and then world championships again interesting um, i think some of my big goals uh i mean I, I think it's i would be lying if i'm i don't mention uh schema being included in the olympics for the first time in 2026 that's obviously kind of the forefront of most uh, schema racers' mind. <laughs> to yeah. uh, this feels kind of funny. It's kind of the first time I I, uh, I sort of share this with uh, with people that I'm not super close with. Uh, but you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of that big scary goal of like the, you know we were talking earlier about mountain biking of chasing uh, the top of the sport. Uh, the mountain biking style that I do, there's no Olympics, but for schema, there is Olympics. And that's like, whoa, that's, that's like a whole other level in terms of uh, pressure and momentum building up towards something. Yeah. And, you know, being on the national team last year and being on it this year, again, for the 23, 24 season, that's two years out from the Olympics. So, you know, I, on paper, I'm on the right track, you know? So right. I think next, that's why I think that's why I feel like I should focus on it next year because I'm probably never going to get that opportunity again to, to at least be in the running for some sort of Olympic selection. And uh, as I was mentioning earlier about sort of uh, finding satisfaction and results, like I'm like, I'm really excited to just have that opportunity to even pursue that where even if I don't make the team which is, you know, honestly the most likely situation because we may only have one or two male representative from the U.S. So it's gonna be it's gonna be super selective, and so you know, I'm 
I'm like ready to know or to accept the fact that I, it's going to be really, really hard to actually make the team, but um, I, I feel pretty confident that I can find a lot of motivation and excitement and being in the equivalent of like Olympic trials, if you will, you know, um, I think that's going to be a really cool sort of experience. It's really cool to be in a sport that's gaining a lot of momentum. Um, I almost feel like it would be, uh, like if we were mountain biking and, the you know, early nineties or something, whatever, when the peak of mountain biking was like, yeah. and anytime I hear stories about that, like, oh, I wish that was just so cool, you know? Yeah. And I kind of feel like for schema, that's the time is kind of right now where uh, it's being introduced to a lot of people. Uh, and the Olympics, obviously, is just going to blow that even more. So, yeah, it's just a cool time to be involved. Um, I am 29. So, you know, I don't see myself doing high level endurance sports for, you know, too, too long. But I think uh, next three, four years is kind of my almost like, uh, last window of like really getting the most out of myself uh so i think that's why i'm pretty excited about schemas because yeah, it'll be cool to see where i can go yeah totally and there's there's real potential there for you to go really far which is super exciting yeah or it, it's just i think just the fact that the potential is unknown is like yeah. is cool, you know or like i mentioned earlier like with cycling it's like i know i could make another world championships team selection, but I know I'm not gonna, you know, sure. I'm not, I know where my level is where for schema every year I'm seeing progress. Everything's still new. I'm still learning a lot. And then until I feel like I've somewhat plateaued, um, I get really excited about, <laughs> you know, I keep trying really hard. Well, so, you know, the big long-term goal is that sort of Olympic selection situation we don't even know um, what that will look like, you know, how we qualify, how we get points as a nation, how many people go. So it's still like a very loose thing. Uh, I'd say on the short term, it's, yeah, basically learning as much as I can, uh, kind of refining the skills, refining the technique, feeling like I'm still progressing. Uh I, obviously, I would like to do well at uh, the national championships next year. The continental championships would be cool to do. Um, I'm, I'll probably go do some European World Cups next winter. Um, so I don't really want to set myself goals there because it's just all going to be new. But uh, kind of how we were talking about Leadville, just to feel like I'm I'm ready, I'm prepared. I'm not intimidated by the European race scene and feel like I can – be a competitor more so than a participant, you know, that's all. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, uh, schema is interesting because I feel like it's still new enough in the U S and in general enough that in the, in the, in the world, I guess that, um, uh, there's not necessarily like a, a very strong, uh, um, training, uh, like concept, I guess, behind how to be the best schema racer out there. Mm. Where, you know, like, if you Google five k running training plan, you're gonna have hundreds and thousands of uh -huh. training plans. You know, same thing with like how to ride your first hundred miles. Like, you know, there's all that science has been like 
tried and true to a certain extent. But for schema, it's still like people are still figuring out like, oh, is it is a is a trail running background good or is a cycling background better or you know cross country skiing backgrounds? You know, like what? Uh-huh. It's just kind of uh, this niche sport, and uh, there hasn't there hasn't been the sports science research done in it the same way it has been for other more mainstream sports like running cycling uh even cross-country skiing you know there's a lot of science and data behind that but for schema it's very different um so which which actually makes it like for me pretty fun to to sort of figure out (laughs) yeah yeah kind of your own little scientist totally and you know i feel like having had those almost 10 years of uh bike racing experience and coaching and then understanding of of training concepts is kind of trying to knowing what works well for me and trying to adapt that to this new sport and seeing if that works. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the schema event that will be in the Olympics is the sprint event. Is that correct? And the team relay. That's correct. Yeah. It's sprint and team relay. So, uh, not really what people would think of when they necessarily think of schema racing. Uh, and there definitely was a lot of uh, pretty upset schema racers out there who kind of publicly shared their disappointment of the decision of the Olympic committee to do what they did. But, uh, you know, for me, it's like, well, it is what it is, you know, Uh, it's not necessarily the discipline that favors me the most, but I feel like as soon as you accept that, that's when you can start working your way towards adapting towards that uh, instead of just being bummed about it and uh, <laughs> not doing anything. So, sure. And the sprint event is like three minutes, right? It's quick. Yeah. It's three minutes, um, which, which is kind of crazy to think about because like doing a three minute interval on a bike feels like it can go by really quick, you know, uh-huh. For, to have a full ski race and that's yeah. running transitioning to boot packing you know ski running again transitioning skiing downhill all that in three minutes like oh man that's <laughs> that's gnarly yeah have you, feels you like, races already what's up? have you done sprint races already i have yeah so i did uh i got on the podium at the power keg uh not this last year but two years ago um so that's cool and then I did a sprint race at the world championships in Spain this past winter. Okay. Um, it actually really reminds me of like, kind of like cyclocross <laughs> racing a little bit because it's just sort of like, it's so intense, but yet you have to stay cool minded and be able to be very sharp in terms of decision-making to not mess up your transitions. Mm. Even though you're, at that point you're breathing out your eyeballs and you can't even see straight and yeah, you still have to be very mentally astute. Absolutely. So with the Olympics choosing this event, the sprint, how is that going to affect your training moving forward? Um, Yes. I'm actually still kind of, you know, figuring that out with my coach because it's still a couple of years out. So we still have time to work towards that. Um, I definitely feel like it's going to be, I, I, 
I feel like by nature, I love long distance endurance. So, you know, it's pretty, it's quite the opposite to do a schema sprint race. But I think in my mind, I kind of think of it that way, where if I, if I do the endurance mountain biking that I already do in the summer, that's basically my base building. And then when fall comes around, I'll start transitioning to some trail running and some gym work. And then in the winter, it'll basically be like just a lot of intensity and, you know, not a ton of volume. And that's kind of in my mind, at least, and just talking with my coach, that's kind of how we're visualizing a little bit these sort of buildups for the schema season is to kind of basically reduce a lot of the endurance and volume that I would do on skis, do that earlier. And that kind of helps build my base to, to just stack a, a ton of um, intensity on the skis and probably just a lot of gym work as well, just to build some strength and some explosivity. Yeah, I mean that's got to be super important in a three-minute event. Got to be strong. Yeah, you know, usually, like for example, this past winter, I love just going out there and doing you know five to ten k vert days, and yeah. probably not going to be doing a whole ton of those <laughs> next winter. Uh-huh. Uh, and if it means I'm just skiing for you know basically like two hour max with some sort of intervals um, in the morning, and then I do some gym work in the evening. It's probably what's going to happen. Um, I'm obviously still going to have um, at least one or two days a week where I can do uh, some more fun, bigger days if I want to. You know, it's not. Yeah. It's not so. I don't want to sacrifice that much. You know, or like like we mentioned, like we, like we talked earlier, like I don't want to be unhappy in this pursuit. Uh-huh. So I become unhappy, and then like, what's the point? <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, you know, I I I do enjoy the sprint racing. I love I like the tactical aspect of it, and um, the technicality of it uh and i think i can become i think i can adapt well as a sprint specialist because i think when i first started cycling i just had really good vo2 and like two minute power um and then i slowly slowly started to kind of stop doing crit racing and stop doing cyclocross and more of the long distance stuff but i feel like i can work my way back to um that sort of like vo2 sprint type of stuff (laughs) yeah and with the sprint race they you do it multiple times right there's like qualifier and then like they break like how does that work um yes it's it's a good uh it's a good question because it's basically like the first it's basically like could be like 60 people and everybody does a qualifying run which is basically a time trial on the sprint course and we're all separated by you know 20 30 seconds or whatever and then I think it's maybe like, I'm going to use a random number, maybe like the top 30, they move to the semifinals and then, then you, then you race with five other people. I think it's heats of six people and out of the six people, I think the top three move on the next round. So it's, so at first it's basically like time trials and then it's heats until the finals and only the top three or the top two people advance um, to the next round. It's a very, very, very different experience going from the time trial where it's just you, you just do your, your thing versus now racing with five other people on a pretty narrow course that is also very technical. And now you have to start thinking strategically, you know, uh, because it is only three minutes, but the difference between going all out, all out and being just the like second or third fastest in your group just to make sure you qualify, but not spend too much energy that adds up, you know, so 
Because you want to save your energy for the most important race. Totally. But then you don't want to be at risk of not going fast enough in the qualifying rounds or, you know, and that's the thing too, which is exciting, I think, is that it only takes a tiny little mistake in the transition to go from second to fifth, you know? So you think you could be saving energy, but if you mess up your last transition or you drop your pole by accident, you have to pick it up again, or you take a little, you know, that extra second to fold your skin and put it in your suit, that could be the difference between having tried to be sneaky and save energy to now it flipping back around and now you don't make the selection. Yeah, yeah totally. That's a careful line to, to walk right there. <laughs> hmm. Um, are you familiar with who Max Valverde is? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dad, Dad goes pro. Yep, Dad Bod goes pro. So for the listeners who don't know, Max Valverde, he's what, like 40, 36? Something like that. Yeah. I've actually I've never met him in person, but I've I've heard of him. Late 30s. He decided to basically retire and train full time to try to make the Olympics in 2026. Um with your perspective, do you think that's possible? Uh what is possible? Making the Olympics. Him. Yeah. Uh you know, nothing's impossible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I, yeah, I guess I don't know Max well enough to be able to say if I think his pursuit of the Olympics is more important to him than actually making it, you know, I, I, my gut feeling is that he's just really excited about showcasing, sharing his experience with people uh more so than uh selfishly just working really hard by himself and not sharing the experience yeah. you know really trying his best to make the olympics uh of course he wants to make the team anybody who's just going to sacrifice as much time and effort they sure. want to make the team but, uh i would be very very surprised if he if he's the one that got <laughs> in, in milan in 2026 uh I think there's a lot, a lot of young talent out there uh, that uh, in the next two years they're going to be like, yeah, pretty, pretty hard to beat, you know. But injuries happen, people get sick, sure, people burn out, people, you know, life happens. So a lot uh, of variables that sometimes aren't in our control. So you know, something there's something to be said about something like Max who just keeps chugging along and eventually something good is going to happen out of it, whether it's his, whether it's his selection on the team or whether it's his personal fulfillment and his pursuit of it. Uh, you know, he's going to have a good time regardless, I think. So. Yeah. What he's doing is pretty cool. You know, yeah, like, cool, you know like uh, I, I remember when he like kind of first started uh, making his post and sharing his story and, uh, you know, it was kind of sad to see a lot of people kind of a lot of ne- there was a lot of negative mm. comments. I don't think, I think the majority of it obviously was very positive, but usually the negative ones are the, the loudest comments that you read or, or hear about. Um, but you know, I, I think, I think he does a really great job of sharing with the average skier even or the average person in the u.s like what what is schema you know (laughs) know, a lot lot of people don't know what schema really even is and 
the people at the top of the sport in the U.S. don't, in my opinion, they don't really make an effort to grow the sport mm. because they're already at the top and they like being there. So they don't, uh-huh. they don't necessarily, they don't necessarily uh, spend, want to take some of their own time to, you know, grow the sport or educate people about it or, you know, uh, which is, which is, which is kind of a bummer. Uh, so I think what Max is doing is awesome. I think, uh, yeah. uh, he did, he, he, like, he did a really cool fundraising campaign for us when we were at the world championships, kind of matching donations and stuff like that. Uh, so, I mean, I, lo- I love his, his excitement about it. Uh, uh, there is a part of me, I mean, I'm not going to lie that as, a little, um, what's the right word? Like, not so much concern, but a little bum that the whole, I guess, the whole idea of influencer athletes, I guess, is not something that I've, I'm very um, excited about, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and to give you a, a, a different like uh, perspective on it, it's definitely something that made me not want to pursue gravel racing anymore oh uh, really i think the only gravel race i've ever done was crush and tusher back in like gosh maybe 2017 maybe and i did pretty well and i was like i loved that race but then that was also kind of the beginning of the gravel influencer boom and now i'm like i just have no interest in going to these events where uh yeah, just the, the influencer superstar stuff is just not really my cup of tea, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, good on them for uh, finding, for noticing an opportunity and making the most out of it. Uh, it's just not really what I'm willing to do, I guess. You know, I'm, I'm kind of naturally a pretty introverted person. Uh and I know a lot of endurance athletes are, and it's it, it's hard to see very talented, hardworking people who don't get opportunities um, because other athletes are putting in more work on the social media front side of things, which which is a lot of work. But when it comes down to a sporting event, you would hope that um, you know talent rises to the top, which just not true anymore unfortunately i think um or the new reality of being a professional athlete now is just very different than what it was um like 10 years ago you know yeah and i kind of say that because i feel like yeah max is really good at doing his his videos and reels and instagram stories and tiktok whatever uh he's really good at doing it he's, he's obviously spending a lot of time and effort like flying his drone and getting his shots and editing and doing that so you know there's there's something to be said that that work should be compensated somehow, but mm. to see, for example, him receiving a sponsorship for his schema stuff from backcountry compared to the national team struggling to find like a title sponsor. Yeah. A weird balance there or, uh, 
but you know, I, I totally get it. Like I, I, I work with a marketing team as my day job and I see the value that Max brings. Not, you know, doesn't even, it's not even Max in particular, just people like influencers bring. Uh, I just don't know how long that's going to last for eventually, you know, eventually that's going to, things are going to change. Um, and I think the best thing we can do if we want to grow sports in general in our country is to really focus on supporting juniors and, and, you know, helping them develop as much as we can. Um, if they think they need to become social media personalities just to become a professional athletes, it's just, it's just kind of sad, I think. Mm. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and you do see that a lot where, they yeah professional cyclists take on the role of influencer as well there's um but there there still are some you know who don't even have social media but are phenomenal which is super cool to see it is yeah (laughs) Uh, and you know it's like and i i hope i don't come across as like you know too uh, negative too too negative about like uh influencers or max and like i I don't i hope i don't i'm not coming to cause too negative no no yeah, I, I just uh, I, I because I do think there's a lot of value, as I mentioned with Max, like of to be able to watch these short form videos that these influencers work with with their sponsors, whether it's like Keegan's White Rim FKT or Payson's videos or all those you know kind of gravel pros, like what they do, it's it's fun to watch it on YouTube or Instagram and whatnot, and it, it kind of helps to grow the sport. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's almost like your job now. It's just, it's not even like a professional cyclist. It's kind of a, uh, multimedia mm. cyclist, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and even just, I guess that's a, maybe a, a broader question that I don't even know if we have time on this podcast, but like, what is a professional athlete? Mm. You know? Because I know a lot of, a lot of professional cyclists who they don't even race. They get paid more than most professional road racers in Europe. <laughs> does that does that make them lesser of a professional athlete i don't think so because they're getting at the end of the day they're getting paid and, and they're still riding bikes doesn't mean you have to be racing the tour de france or be on a world tour team or be on a factory mountain bike team you know yeah uh, i think it is cool that there is like all these different ways to make a career out of it uh i just think it's a weird time right now because a lot of it is really new and people are still figuring that out basically yeah, no, absolutely. It is really, yeah, that's a good, a good take on it. You know, kind of seeing both perspectives and, and sides for sure. Just bringing up FKTs, that was something I wanted to ask you. Is that something, I know there's several um, schema FKTs that people go for. Is that something you ever see yourself doing or attempting is going for FKTs anywhere? Yeah, totally. I, I think, uh, again, I don't, I don't know why, but I feel like a lot of people like, I don't know if it's from a running or a rock climbing background. They just people are almost are afraid to share their FKT uh, ambitions. They almost, uh, they almost keep projects secretive until they actually do them. Sure, I feel like it's kind of silly. Um, <laughs> but I'm totally happy to share like uh, <laughs> what I would like to do. Uh, a big one that I was I kind of had a big X on trying to do this spring was the Mount Rainier FKT. Which someone just got, right? Someone just got, and, and now, like, I had done all this, like, calculations, like, I think the old record is doable. 
I feel like if I have a really good day, the old record is, is you know, it's, it's at least it's, it's, uh, I can, I can like mentally imagine myself doing it. Right. <laughs> now it was, now the new record's like, oh man, uh, it would be a lot, lot, a lot more things would have really have to go really, really. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jason had it before. Is that correct? Uh, uh, yeah. I think Jason and Tom Goth had it. Okay. Um, and that was legendary. I was like, man, two like Salt Lake legends in the totally. ski world. And Matt Rainier is like this legendary, you know, volcano. And I feel like that was probably the most, um, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's the equivalent of like the white rim for me, you know? Sure. Yeah, totally. It's like the mountain bike FKT, or it was like, you know, two or three years ago when, it, when the pandemic hit. It's kind of the one everybody wanted to get. Uh, and yeah, this new record is like, oof, that's, that's a little dicey now. And it's to the point where, on on like mountain biking i feel like schema fkts they just there's a way bigger risk mm. factor involved um because you're not just going uphill you're going uphill and downhill so you know if you're like two minutes back and you're trying to make two minutes on a 20 minute descent with yeah. bosses and other parties going up by hiking and camping uh it's almost to the point now where I feel like it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but like almost like borderline irresponsible to like be chasing uh, these FKTs, at least when it's like uh, full season or, or the public's out there. You know, it's kind of like going for a Strava KOM when at 5 p.m. on the shoreline, it's like, uh, you know, you, know, it's, you can yeah. try, but it's like, you know, you can piss off a lot of people. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> You know, if it's like early season or really early in the morning, then I think it's fine. Um, right. But yeah, the 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 big P, like you know, big mounds are are nothing to 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 take lightly. So there's a fine line between uh, feeling like you have the fitness to do it, and then feeling like you not only have the skills to match your fitness, but also have the mental clarity of being able to, to objectively like do some risk assessment while you're mid effort, you know, because, uh, and, and you know, unfortunately people are eventually going to die from it. Um, yeah. So when you're at 13,000 feet and at 188, 180 beats per minute, like you're not thinking very well, you know, that's, that's a hard place to still make those kinds of decisions. For a lot of people just summoning my near once is like, the peak of the mountaineering uh right. yeah thing, uh, to think that we can just like literally jog up there in like spandex and schema gear is, is pretty silly but uh-huh. I, I i do think it's fascinating um <laughs> i think I, I do want to uh kind of share that it's you know i i just hope people can um uh, i don't know just like take it maybe more seriously than uh than it might appear because you know even like here in our area like it seems like every season uh one or two people die from from doing the world it seems like you know like people fall trying to scramble these uh it's easy to think oh when so-and-so did it in x hours like that's crazy fast like it can't be that hard but no it it is pretty hard (laughs) Uh, dangerous 
and and very dangerous. Uh, uh, I'm a, I always love traveling light and fast. That's kind of my favorite mode of transportation of moving in the mountains. Um, yeah, but it, it can be scary, can be dangerous. Um, and it's not like being on a mountain bike or trail running. There's a lot, there's a lot of steeper terrain, weather, temperature changes. Uh, yeah, just a lot more factors, you know, and a lot less people too. Like if right. something goes south, there's like if you're mountain biking and crash pretty bad, chances are someone will come across you pretty soon. But when you're yeah. in the back country, you could be alone for a long time. It's, it's I think it's not fair to assume that you can be rescued, you know, by others. Yeah. That's a very hard thing to kind of try and understand and uh how selfish that that can be to your friends and family or even other people on the mountain who are just trying to have a good time chilling in my rear like they don't want to deal with hearing about some kid who crashed slid and died you know it's like no one wants to hear that yeah Mm. so with all that in mind is this something that you think he'll go for eventually my rear or Mount Rainier. uh i mean i would like to do it i've done it i did it once it wasn't uh, I did it once, maybe like uh, two years ago. Okay, that was like a big day and big adventure for us. And we weren't necessarily trying to go fast; it was just kind of we were trying to do it in a day. So I would like to go again and do it, and you know, maybe not like full throttle, but just at a like high tempo the whole day type of thing. Yeah, know? yeah, feel pretty comfortable about doing that, and kind of I'd be curious to do that see where my time stacks and then maybe that can help me kind of give a, an idea of what's doable what's not sure. <laughs> yeah no I think that would be wise kind of give yourself a little bit of a a checkpoint see if it's something that's in the cards there's a lot of really cool like I think what that's what's cool about winter FKTs is that you're not necessarily restricted to a summer trail mm. or road so it's you can be a lot more creative with how you move through the mountains. And um, I think winter FKTs become really interesting too, when it's not just one ascent and descent, but kind of a, a link up of ridges. Oh, you know, that it can be very long, but it, uh, I think that's, it's, that's cool too, because I think it, the longer the distance in a, in a weird way, I think it almost reduces the risk factor. Oh, interesting. Because, you know, on one hand, it's, you know, it's a lot more exhausting. It's a lot longer time. But you're also moving a little, you're not as quick and your heart rate's not through the roof the whole time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't have plans like this year for any of them and probably not next year with kind of this spring focus. But, yeah, uh, I love I love following it. I love looking at it on Strava. I love looking at it on the FKT website uh, or hearing about it. Um, it's always pretty, pretty impressive, you know, to to hear what people are able to do and how quickly they're able to move in the mountains like that. Yeah. It's mind blowing. It's pretty, really cool to see. Um, Let's maybe wrap up. I would love to hear your story. I think I saw in Strava last winter, maybe when you did like the Ogden Ridge line, something skiing, it was like 18,000 feet of climbing 30 miles or something like that. That was, that was a really cool day. Um, for anyone who's been in Ogden, it's basically like 
it's basically like all the mountains you can see in Ogden, <laughs> which is kind of the inspiration behind it. I was like, man, like when you're downtown Ogden and you look at the, the, the landscape, it's like, it's all you can see. And I was like, I've, I've skied there and I've skied there, but like, it'd be pretty cool to be able to ski the whole thing in one day. Um, so for people who are familiar with Ogden, we started at basically the Maylands trailhead skied or skinned and hiked all the way to the backside of snow basin mm. dropped into snow basin we had to put skis on pack and sneakers on and we had to actually like walk uh almost like a mile i think to the the lewis peak trailhead then skin all the way up uh kind of traverse by lewis peak drop down to the north Ogden divide at that point, we were already like it was three of us. Uh, at that point, we were pretty smoked already because that was that's basically two thirds of the way, um, and the skiing was horrendous. It was like as light was yeah two winters ago, so it was just a bad winter, uh, not a ton of snow. On the snow, it was like just super crusty. It was punchy. It was like terrible downhill skiing, especially on skimo gear. Yeah, uh, we got to the bottom of the divide and we were just smoked. Uh, one of our friends bailed there, and then my friend Colby and I finished. The skin all the way up to uh, Ben Loman Ridgeline. Yeah, and at that point it was almost getting dark. I'm like, oh man, one last downhill, but it's going to be a painful one because legs are toast, mentally we're drained, it's getting dark. We're trying to figure out how to put headlamps on. How many like hours elevation miles in are you at this point? Uh, so the whole thing was like 12 hours. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's in the winter, so I think we started at 6 a.m. and it was dark and we finished at 6 p.m., which is it's also dark in the winter. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I feel like 12 hours in the winter feels like a, a much longer 12 hours than it would if it was spring or summer. Uh, and I think yeah, it's just I – th- I don't think any of us had spent 12 hours in ski boots like that before, <laughs> especially, like, going up and going down. You're, you're really kind of, like, your foot shifts a lot in your boot in weird ways that you didn't necessarily imagine. So I think we did one, like, sock change, put dry socks on, and that helped a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I was still getting some pretty gnarly blisters by, by the last descent. <laughs> Holy cow. It's, it's funny to think about it now because it's actually something that I think uh, – most people don't necessarily think of when they think of schema, but I feel like the most painful parts are the downhill. Mm. So uh, a lot of people think, oh, the uphill is like so hard. You guys are kind of like running and going really hard. But it's, if anything, like downhill is the hardest part because you're, you're full of lactic acid and your legs are tired. And yet you still have to try and, <laughs> and go down over that crashing. Uh, <laughs> that is hard. Yep. And it's not like you get a nice rest at the top. You know, you're transitioning. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Down you go, so. <laughs> That's intense. Holy cow. Um, Audrey, are there any other last thoughts, anything else you'd want to share? Uh, I'm just curious if uh, you think you'll do some schema next year because I know we talked a little bit about it over this yeah. month. I know you've been touring a lot. Um, so do you have any any plans there or? Yeah, I think they'll definitely do the powder tag next year. Um, I was just late registering this year, and it all I didn't realize that they would cut off registration. So I'll register early next year for that, and then probably just a few of the, the Tuesday night races. Um, so I'll, I'll dip my toes in the water this year, I think, see how it goes. 
So it'll be fun. You, you any bike racing this year? Yep. So I've got, I'm going to Missoula next week and then I'll race Soldier Hollow. And then I'm doing the Crusher. Nice. And then basically about a month after that, the collegiate stuff will start. So that's collegiate mountain biking. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Should be a fun season. Are you, or do you have any mountain bike races planned? I do. I'm actually, uh, I have a pretty big one coming up in like two weeks. Um, I'm going to Columbia. Oh, wow. The Pan American Marathon Championships. Oh, no way. That's so, sweet. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about you say that. Or who are you going down with? Who are you going with? Uh, so I'm, I'm flying with uh, a friend slash mechanic here. And then there's only, there's one girl that's going to be racing for Team USA from the East Coast. Uh, her name's Abigail Snyder. Nice. Yeah, I haven't met her yet, but it's just the two of us kind of representing the U.S. there. Um, Great. So that should be cool. Never been down there. Uh, high altitude, which I like. Okay. Yeah. Or they're climbing, which I like. So nice. <laughs> awesome. Good for you. So that's uh, two weeks, you said? Yeah, June 18th, I think. Yeah. Well, best of luck with that. I'll be excited. I'll keep you posted. Yeah, please do. Please, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be on the lookout on Strava, social media, see what, see what goes down. <laughs> So that'll be good. So thanks so much for coming on, Jules. It was good catching up and hearing all of your great stories. So, Jay, um, yeah, talk soon. Okay, sounds good. Good luck. Okay.